0: One of the early things in my career that was just incredibly exciting was finding the first treatment for stroke, which was TPA. We started that work back in 1987. And when you saw patients get dramatically better, which you'd never really seen before, that was just one of those kind of moments in life that you say, well, that's why I became a doctor. This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team.
1: Welcome to episode sixty-six zero of the No Stroke Podcast. I'm Dave Dancero and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Garrow. Hi, Mike. How we doing, David? Doing, 60. doing well. we've uh I remember going back to
2: fifty not too long ago. So we've been, we started the summer. I think we hit fifty, and we're now yeah. rolling into autumn. So nice to, uh, you know, if we're counting milestones, we could use sixty as another milestone. But hundred yeah. coming soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we're ro- you said we're rolling into to, to autumn, but it's still hot as heck in this area in the northeast, and uh, not ready for the pumpkin spice yet. I know last year this time we were we had a debate about pumpkin spice, but I'm still just trying to stay cool. So,
2: yeah, the uh, corn mazes and pumpkin season coming soon.
1: My uh, both both we both agree it's our favorite time of the year. So maybe we'll make a fall get together happen. We'll see.
2: I hope it happens. We we locked on the summer, so <laughs> make this one worked. <laughs> Tried
1: our best, but couldn't make it in person. Anyway, we've met a lot like this, but. We'll try it. We'll see what we can do for the fall, Mike.
2: Yeah. So what do you got? Uh, anything in the news for this week,
1: David? Yeah. You know, I want to mention, cause it ties in with our guests, which I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll let you take the mic on that in a moment. I just wanted to say um, we talked a little bit about um, in the, in this upcoming interview with the problems of, um, clinic em- enrollment on the you know for stroke patients with uh, clinical research, and so um, I just wanted to mention that um, there's an opportunity in the fall um, out of the University of Rhode Island, my alma mater, uh, for motor control and re their motor control and rehab lab. So if you qualify, if you're between 18 and 16 years old. Um, they're looking at, um, so one off session, it's only would re- require about 90 minutes of your time, but they're looking to see how something called instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization affects lower extremity tone and spasticity. So if that applies to you, reach out to me on our no stroke pod website. Um, um and I will put you in touch with the PI. So I've, I just wanted to bring that up, Mike, cause I've, it's, you know, our last couple of episodes we did run long, and I and I didn't have a chance to to fit that in. So again, this is a, a timely thing. So we're we're uh, September twenty twenty three. So we would apply for this coming fall.
2: Yeah, it's a good, good call out, and you know, I think today's guest, um, you know, we we really dove into the importance of clinical trials and kind of how that's been evolved and and the work that that he has done. Um, and just quickly before you know we get in and introduce our guest, um, I just wanted to call out there was an exciting piece of work, uh collaboration really in partnership with uh the Gilbert Foundation and Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. So Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, world-renowned you know, stroke and yeah. uh, neuro rehab center based in Chicago. Um usually you know just one one hospital right now, and they've gotten a commercial partnership agreement with the Gilbert foundation to expand and open a clinic in Detroit. So a bit of background there, um, the Gilbert foundation's family um, family foundation um, stood up by Dan Gilbert, um, who is, you know, one of the most successful businessmen in America, multi-billionaire um, founder of mortgage uh, put me on the spot now, a mortgage, uh, mortgage. Y- rocket mortgage, rocket,
1: rocket mortgage. mortgage. Yeah. Quicken yeah. Loans, rocket mortgage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's done, you know, has a had of phenomenal uh, career, a child who suffered from a rare uh, neurological disorder um, that his foundation really focused on. Um, he, unfortunately about five years ago, I would say Dan suffered a, a stroke given a, approximately that timeline um, which you know he's spoken to on some occasions but I think it's, it's certainly been a debilitating uh, stroke for him uh, he's done his he, if you look in kind of the press that's out there Um, he received his care at Shirley Ryan and really was passionate to, to bring a center of excellence to Detroit and the community so he's a you know him and the foundation. They've they've done brilliant work in Detroit to really build up that that city and and drive innovation, drive you know where um, you know and now a, a prestigious medical center um to hopefully support others who've gone through a similar thing as Dan you know experienced in his family. So um you know kudos to them and you know exciting to see uh sure the continue to expand.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah, if you're interested, we. We interviewed, um, Ar- Dr. Arun Jaraman, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I butchered that last <laughs> you got it. Not. You got it. Um, <laughs> back in, I think it was episode 31 of the, so you have to go back. Yeah. Go back quite a bit, but he, um, leads their, their uh, research and innovation center, centers, done great work. He's a fellow PT to David. So, you know, I would suggest people go back and, uh, listen to that if you're interested to see what Shirley Ryan has been up to um but you know today's guests really excited to welcome in Dr um Joseph Broderick um he is out of the University of Cincinnati uh, Health Center so we've been honored to have a few guests in from UC Health
1: yeah, I'll just uh just what's let's, let's highlight those just uh, Ava mystery in episode uh, episode 46 and uh Dr Chris Richards on the msu and, and on episode 50 so both great interviews
2: mm-hmm. and yeah today we've we're going to be speaking with dr joseph broderick um who is a really esteemed uh stroke expert and and has been in with uc health since 1987 um you know has done work really within the tpa space since the early days like he he brings us through one of the first studies that uc health and and you know him and other colleagues were involved in really to look at the benefit of tpa being assessed in the time window and and kind of has been a part of the trajectory of how tpa has expanded um to i think we're now around a four-hour window Mm -hmm. um so we we go through you know his his um, background in front sort of what's got him to where he is today within UC health and the research he's been doing. um, We speak to a trial that he's coordinating right now. It's a multi-center. I believe it's even multi uh, country, like across across the world it has a few different centers in it um, called the fastest trial. And that's looking specifically at hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and he gives a, a really like, I think you highlighted it, David, you know, when you're, Probably the best ever explanation, you know, to folks out there really yeah. who who might not understand the difference between ischemic and uh, hemorrhagic stroke. So, um, yeah, we're we're honored to have him on today, um, and I think it'll be interesting for folks to also listen into the second half where we really dive into his work with uh, StrokeNet, which is funded through the National Institute of Health, um, and is building out a a network um, for some of these clinical trials and stroke to really have that core um, and not having to kind of start from scratch each time a new trials getting stood up. So it was, you know, interesting to to dive into the different topics with them. And yeah. I think, you know, really where my highlight was, was, you know, his connection to stroke. And, you know, we always talk about having, you know, the importance of having your why, um for any work that you do, right? But specifically within Stroke, he has that personal personal connection, which he'll share. Um, as well as the patient collaboration, both from a patient and caregiver perspective within Stroke Net and how those voices are being heard, um, from feasibility and participation as well. So
1: yeah, and just my two cents on sort of takeaway some, something for all listeners to pay attention to, just on the evolution of technology, you'll hear him talk a little bit about how the early early days of the mobile phone that really was in a bag in your car to the the great example he he gives during the magic wand question when he answers a call on 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 his cell phone by his bedside and the and the intervention that occurs as 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 that set off that 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 timely intervention that's needed to save brain so that was really it just made me think after about wow we we have come a long way in terms of adapting technology. And we just need to, I think, as you and I know, as part of our mission, do, do better on the recovery side and hopefully. um, Yeah. And he provides
2: some optimism, right. It's like there's been so much work done in the acute phase and kind of the prevention, but you know, now looking forward to the future, just what lies ahead for the opportunities to really expand and and have more personalized rehabilitation and hopefully improve outcomes. I think he was quite optimistic about, so um yeah yeah let's dive into this one david um and as always you know if you do like this episode and and the show please leave a review share it with a friend um you know it does help so uh here we go episode 60 with dr joseph broderick hi there dr broderick and welcome to the no stroke podcast thank you we've been um you know fortunate to speak to a few of your colleagues uh university of cincinnati health um and it's you know an honor to have you on today as you know a prestige researcher and clinician in the field um we're we're super excited to dive into you know your your latest research as well as the history of you know the research you've been involved in over the years um but you know before we dive into that you know can you just maybe bring our listeners on a bit of a, a journey with us, you know, your your career to date and kind of what's gotten you to your position today within UC Health? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I had some terrific teachers and mentors when I was doing
0: my residency at the Mayo Clinic that got me excited about stroke and stroke research. But I would say after that, it's really been the patients that I see every day that motivate me. One of the early things in my career that was just incredibly exciting was finding the first treatment for stroke, which was TPA. Uh, We started that work back in 1987. And when you saw patients get dramatically better, which you'd never really seen before, that was just one of those kind of moments in life that you say, well, that's why I became a doctor. And, And then finally, stroke is really personal for me since my first grandson had a stroke when he was a few weeks old. Um, he had to be treated with, with something called ECMO, which where you have to oxygenate the blood by machine because he had a very severe lung infection as this premature baby. And his pictures in my office on the top shelf, it's it's one of him at his first Christmas, uh, first Christmas, and it says stroke is why. And so that's the why I, I do what I do.
1: Oh, thank you, Dr. Broderick for sharing that and that, that your personal why and your, your connection with stroke. And we, we, um, we always, before we dive into all the great work you're doing in your research, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do outside of the clinic and what, you know, outside of your research time, what kind of, what kind of interest do you have uh, in, in your personal side of the life? Yeah,
0: so, so I love sports. Um, I
1: can't play like I
0: used to, uh, but I, I follow it pretty actively. Uh, I love to lead, read and listen to books. I've read lots lots of books way outside of medicine and I think actually it keeps you broad as good I play the piano some still uh most of all though I think would say my wife my four kids and and soon- to- be four grandchildren I spend time with them and that's a great joy
2: that's great to you know thank you for sharing some of that background and especially the like David mentioned as well the the personal journey and the why that motivates you there with with your grandchild that unfortunately suffered that event and I, you know I think we've you know, we've spoke with some folks kind of on the pediatric side that suffered stroke and it's really just you know the, the fact that stroke has no age limit right like this could happen at, at any point in your life um but you know i i'd like to you know you you touched on the fact that you early on in your career you are involved in the first ever TPA study and kind of really bringing that to light as a treatment option for for stroke survivors um You know, can you walk us through, like, how that study started, and really just the intervention as a as a clinical phase, like TPA, like how it's been used um, from where it was in 1987 to to kind of where it's progressed to now as a treatment option.
0: Sure. So, got to go back in time,
2: back into different age of medicine,
0: particularly neurology and stroke when I was a resident growing up, was something, we, we made the diagnosis very well, saying, yep, that's a stroke, um, but we had nothing that we could really do about it. We were always then kind of focused on preventing the next stroke. And we would often see people the next day, you know, sort of like, because there was nothing to do. So one of the things that happened with understanding how the brain dies after a stroke is that people began to see in animal models that it really was not something that you had a day, you had only maybe hours to really try to restore the blood to the brain for the for somebody who has having an ischemic stroke. And, and so then there was this push towards time. Now the cardiologist, and my brother's a cardiologist, interventional cardiologist, um, they had made a lot of progress with using lytic agents, things that break up blood clots in the heart. But we hadn't done that at all in the in the brain and for stroke. So back in the, night, again, mid, late uh, 1980s, there was a protein called tissue plasminogen activator. TPA is what we use for short. And it's a protein that's found in our bloods. And one of the really, the big breakthroughs was uh, a researcher, a woman researcher, who figured out how to make whole bunch, whole, lots of TPA using bacteria and the bacteria would be like a factory for making TPA because you need a lot of it. So that was a breakthrough. It was tested in, in heart patients first, and then we began to test it in, in acute stroke patients. Now, we had to change, though, the way we were going to do things because we were going to treat people within 90 minutes from when they had their first symptoms. And many of our colleagues as well, that ain't possible. You know, you, you're going to have to really show us that you can do that. So One of the ways we actually were able to do that is we were of the first use cell phone technology, but cell phone technology back then was not the little thing we carry around in our pockets, but it was literally about a, a foot by about, you know, four or five inches and you would plug into the cigarette lighter of your car and that's how you would. And so we used that though. And we would hand it off each night to one of us on call in the greater Cincinnati region. And we would go to the hospitals rather than having the, the patients coming to the academic center. We were going out to the, the hospitals themselves. And we would be making like eight, nine phone calls on the way, driving a half an hour to a hospital. We'd be talking to the physician. We'd be talking to the radiology, the pharmacy. And we were able to treat people with 90 minutes. But many of our colleagues thought we were making it up because we were changing the way that you did things. We, we talked about the trauma model for stroke rather than our typical model for stroke. So when we were able to treat that quickly within what the animal model showed would work, we were able to show that it did work. And so that was um, the big study that was done in eight centers in the United States in, in the, in the mid nineties. And in 1995, that was published to the New England Journal of Medicine. And in 1996, the FDA approved TPA for stroke. And, and we've been working on ways in which we can um, add things to TPA, particularly though we've worked on devices that pull blood clots out. That's been a major advance. Uh, and, and then also taking pictures of the brain to see if the brain is, has still some salvageable tissue because you don't have a whole lot of time, but in some people, the brain holds on long enough that if you can get the, br- the blood flow back, You can actually salvage the brain so we we now have treatments that we go out to 24 hours if the imaging looks pretty good and that's also a major advance and that's really only really in the last maybe about four or five years so in my lifetime in my professional lifetime when i started i literally started when we were testing tpa and now we've seen some major advances but still a lot of work to do because about half the people who get uh, either a, a lytic drug like TPA, or have the clot pulled out, they still don't have good outcomes. And that's what we we still have to do. And then we also have to work on how do we pe- help people who had significant damage to the brain, how to make it better.
1: That's fascinating. The, the, <laughs> and I was chuckling a little bit, as you described uh, the, uh, I refer to those early phones as the bag phone. And I'm I'm the more senior of the two of, of the co-hosts here. So, Mike, I don't know if you remembered that, but uh, I certainly remember how 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 those uh, that was the definitely the early tech that uh, that connected us. But um, so you mentioned that there there are still some barriers on and on the. Um, the prevention side, the the intervention side has definitely evolved, and you you and your teams have led some of that early work on the MSUs. Um, where do you think before we get into some of your some of your work? Do you, do you feel that there on the rehabilitation side, which is a lot of what Mike and I fo- focus on in the communities, um, is there any is there any area there that we can maybe use technology to do a better job? Is that is that something that um, you you could comment on? Sure. So,
0: first of all, we we understand
1: pretty much about
0: you know clots that form and how to get clots out, and and when and when the blood vessel breaks and you have bleeding the brain, what maybe caused it and try to stop. We have we understand things better than we do about how the brain recovers and how new systems are set up or how you know when you when one part of the brain goes out and another brain part of the brain kind of co-op and take on that role uh, and and maybe not do it as well but still do it somewhat we don't understand well enough how the brain recovers and repairs itself we know that um, people like my grandson you know who has who had a really big stroke it's remarkable what he's been able to do but he had it at a time when the brain is much more plastic a lot of new, more new cells being um, being laid down more connections that could be made. Whereas when you're 80, you just don't have that same ability in the brain. So, uh, so it is dependent upon your age when you have a stroke. We also are trying to do a study called verify. You may have talked to my some my colleagues, which is trying to, 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 to understand who most likely is going to recover. And maybe that'll help us target which type of therapy for different people. And that, where that's where we stimulate the brain and then we see how that stimulation is conducted down out into the to the hand and you know you get a twitch and if you don't get a twitch it means you probably don't have very well intact um, cables from the brain to down to the where you need to in the arms and legs and we also take pictures of the brain to outline those fibers or those cables that have been damaged and then try to predict how people are going to do so we have to understand better about how people recover and what's needed to recover, but then you know we can try to see what type of therapies we can add. So you know, there's the constraint therapy, which was probably the first really proven therapy for stroke, where you basically take the good hand and arm and you and you don't you know you, you make sure that people can't use it and make them use the one that's not working so well because of the stroke. But there's other ways of then trying to stimulate the brain um, and trying to help maybe simulate the other parts of the brain to take on the function or inhibit the bad parts of the brain. So there's a lot of things we still don't know, but I think there's a lot of excitement. I I, I look upon this, the, the, the time in my professional career has been the golden age of stroke treatment and prevention, but I look along the next century as how we learn about how the brain recovers after injury, not just from stroke, but trauma and things like that.
2: Yeah, you know, and you've been in, involved in so much great work over the over your career. To again, when we think about stroke, right, it's around fast, right? It's getting them, getting that patient to the hospital as quickly as possible. And you know, there, it's nice to hear you speak about you know the what we've focused on because that is ultimately the, the important aspect is getting people to the treatment option as quickly as possible. But that they're still lots of opportunity to, to expand and and improve outcomes in the recovery time. Um, but I'd like to kind of go back and, and focus on a study that you're, that you're currently involved in around, I believe it's titled the fastest trial. Um, and you know, if you could just explain, I've, I've looked a bit into it, but if you could just explain, you know, what an inner cerebral hemorrhage is um, to our listeners, right. And why this has maybe been an area of research that's been a little less kind of focused on over the time. Um, and then we could talk through the trial itself.
0: So let's back up just a, po- a moment and just talk about stroke in general, the causes. So you get stroke because really of two, two reasons. One is you block an artery, and the blood can't get to the brain, and the brain desperately needs that blood because it provides oxygen and other substances to keep the brain cells alive. And brain cells don't do very well, very long without blood. That's called ischemic stroke, and that makes up 85% of all strokes. So it's by far the most common. The other type of stroke is when the blood vessel breaks, just like you have a busted pipe in your house, and, that causes all kinds of problems because blood inside the vessel is good. Blood outside the vessel is almost, is really toxic to the brain. Um, and, and it also starts to accumulate and there's not enough sp- space up in the head in most people such that the pressure can be life-threatening. And so about 10% of the time, a little bit more than 10%, the bleeding occurs in the brain. We call that intra-cerebral, which is in the brain hemorrhage. And there's another type of brain that's due to ruptured aneurysm, which is less, much less common. And that's where a little blister on the blood vessel pops and the blood accumulates around the brain in the, in beneath a a arachnoid membrane, which is a membrane that covers the brain. And that's called subarachnoid hemorrhage, but the intracerebral hemorrhage, um, if you can think about it in your house again, if you've ever had a busted pipe with water that just kind of spilling things out, you know how much more destructive that is when then you just have a a, a clogged pipe, you know, a clogged drain, which, you know, you can work out and get it open. But, you know, when the water is accumulated across your toilet floor or whatever, you you it's, it's bad. And so it's very bad in the brain. In fact, you know, this is the highest uh, proportion of patients that die from a stroke. So about almost, almost 50%, but certainly in the mid 40% of people will be dead at a month after hemorrhage and about only 20% historically have been able to actually care for themselves, take care of themselves after six months. So it's by far the deadliest type of stroke. And when I said that there was a time, a big time component with the blockage kind of stroke, the time component here is even is shorter. So uh, it, it's a very challenging and that's one of the reasons why it's been hard to treat because it's less common but it's very deadly and we don't have a whole lot of time so there's a couple ways that we try to think we could maybe help stop the bleeding or slow the bleeding one is by treating the blood pressure and keeping the pressure in the system down just like you're trying to turn off your your pressure valve and in the house the water uh, so you don't have the 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 the, the, um, the bleeding continuing or the the, the flooding continuing you, you try to turn it down the pressure or what we're trying to do with fastest is we take another protein our body makes called it's called factor 7A and we also have made have bacteria made huge amounts of it and it's called recombinant factor 7A and so we give that and we're trying to do that very soon after the hemorrhage occurs in order to have the body form a, a plug, just like you have a, a, a dam and you have these you know, leaks in the dam and you're trying to put spackling compound over it and stuff. Well, that's what the body's trying to do is trying to plug that busted artery so the bleeding stops before it causes too much problem. So that's the principle of what we're trying to do with fastest. Now in FASTIS, we're we're using this drug that we know actually does slow bleeding we've had a number of bigger trials that have done that, but we've had mixed mixed results. And one of the things is when we looked at the prior data from other trials is that the benefits seem to occur if you gave it within a couple hours after onset. So what the challenge in this study is, we're treating people similar to that very first study we did with TPA, we're treating people within two hours of when they had the onset of their symptoms. So to, to do that, we have some different ways we're trying to make sure that can happen. One is we're using mobile stroke units, which you may have talked about on the show before, so we can actually deliver the drug right after when they get a picture of the brain in the ambulance. The other way we're doing it is something called exception from informed consent. What does that mean? Well, it means that we have to give it so quickly and the patients are so badly affected usually that they can't provide consent and so you have to go to the wife or the mother or the brother or the family member and you may not be able to get hold of them right away so what the government guidelines allow us to do is that if we talk to a community talk about what the study is trying to do and we get we get feedback that we're going to use this study medication factor 7a to see if it helps people we can start the medicine and then get consent, the formal consent after we start the medicine. But we have to we have to talk to the community first before we go ahead with that. So that is something that's happening. You know, it's happening in a number of communities in the United States. So we're very excited. We're you know we're about little about almost a third of the way done recruiting, um, but we hope this may be our first treatment for intracerebral hemorrhage.
2: That's a that's an interesting. And what was the consent called? Called what exception
0: the... from informed consent. It's only so, used when mm-hmm. people have like emergencies that you don't have time to sit down and have a conversation right. for half an hour, an hour. So, for example, let's say you were having a seizure out in the field, out, you know, your home, whatever, and you were testing a, a way to stop the seizure more effectively. You don't have the ability to talk to that person, or maybe there's nobody else around, but you may be able to offer them something. That either is, you know, the traditional treatment or something that could be better. But that's an example where you have an emergent situation. You just don't have the sit, time to sit down and chat because things are moving very quickly.
2: Right. Yeah. And just to kind of drill on that a little bit, is that kind of the first, Is are there other examples that are out there within stroke particularly or other yeah, clinical so like a, diseases that require this? So there
0: was, there's been other, uh, other treatments in stroke that have been tested this way. There was a, a study called fast mag, which was a, a treatment that was being done in the ambulance with a magnesium, you know, and, and magnesium is pretty safe. It's used for people, for women who have a, a eclampsia and pregnancy, and it has, it, we thought could have some beneficial effect. It turned out it didn't work for stroke patients, but it was given in the ambulance because it was reasonably safe. And they also use this exception from informed consent to get the treatment started as quickly as possible. Uh, And there's been some other trials that have used it as well, but it's only this, this process has only been around since 1996 when the FDA approved this process for emergency conditions that you just didn't have time to have the conversation that you would typically have And, and, and that, and it doesn't mean you don't get consent. It means you get the consent sort of after the fact. So let's say somebody was enrolled in the study and and afterwards they say, you know, or I don't want to be in that study. You, everything you collected up to that point in time would still be in the research study. But after that, the patient would not be part of the study. So we still get consent. It's just that the treatments have to be given very, very quickly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And say, if this was going to be a successful study, like would that would then roll into that type of consent? Would that still be part of like, no, the even it would just be, you, you yeah. would know it's
0: treatment. So, for example, right. with TPA, um, you if people are not around, we just give TPA because we know it yeah. works. Right. Um, if 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 they are there, we always say, hey, look, we're giving you a drug that can help. But here's the risk. And we still give it, you know, and somebody could refuse in that situation still, I don't want to get it. Or let's say somebody is severely demented and, you know, then grandma, you know, she's ready to, to, you know, she's, she's, she doesn't want to get TPA, you know, you know, we don't think that'd be appropriate. So you still have times where people don't get a therapy for various reasons, but you still as a doctor give the best treatment that you have available that's that's part of we, why we take the hippocratic oath is that we're trying to do what's best for patients we don't want to do harm but we're going to give them every shot that we can to make sure they do as well as they can
2: gotcha okay well yeah thanks for thanks for explaining that i'm sure it adds a bit more you know complexity into the overall design and and you know data collection of the study but how um bring us through like how long has this study you know been going on for how many patients enrolled, like is it on track about, to be completed?
0: Around 260 patients, which is about a third of what we want. Um the we we started the study right as COVID hit. <laughs> that, that was a that was a real challenge um, because it put behind all our efforts to do this what's called this epic this community consultation because we couldn't actually get to talk to patients or to people in the community because of the COVID. So that that set us back about a year and a half to two years. So um, we started kind of more in the 2019-20 area, but it was right r- literally right as COVID hit. Um, and so we're now back on track. and but it was uh, it was tough. Uh, COVID was really, really challenging for all of our clinical research trials, not just in stroke but in, in the world in general. So that really slowed down progress for a couple of years.
2: Yeah, and we're gonna um you know, as we move to the second half of this interview, and you know, we're gonna to speak to, you know, a wider range of work and your and in your involvement in StrokeNet, uh, stroke net. And you know, we could maybe touch on the impact that COVID's had there. Um, but just you know, and maybe this is just you know, I've been involved in stroke for a long time and I should have I should probably know this, but as we have the expert on, I would be curious to hear, you know, when when we look at TPA, right? Like going back to you know, the first trial that you got, you worked on in 87, it was in a 90 minute window. And now it's expanded, if I'm not mistaken, to about four hours right, for a, a ischemic stroke. Um, What, like when you're, when these new studies are coming out, and it's excitement over, okay, we've expanded the time window. Like, what are you looking at to and. Analyze to say, okay, now this is an appropriate amount of time that we know that we can administer based on, like, based on what, right? Is it yeah, going so back the, to those so brain the brain images? So that, like right. That? No,
0: actually, the the main thing we look for in in these acute treatment studies is the outcome is how patients are doing after their stroke. So, typically, we look at it three months after their outcome. So, and what we do is we use something called a modified Rankin scale. And, but it's really pretty simple. It's, it's a, it's a, there's it six different, cat- seven different categories you can use. So one is zero, which means I have no symptoms. I'm just like I was prior to when this happened. One is I got some symptoms, um, but I'm still doing everything I used to do before. I can still play golf. I work, I do whatever, you know, I may a little tingly in my hand, but it doesn't affect what I do. the big one is when you get to the two and the two means, you know, I can, I can manage and taking care of myself. I can, you know, get, you know, they bring meals and wheels. I can put in the microwave. I can take care of it. I can get around. Um, But I can't do all the things I used to do. You know, I can't work. Maybe I maybe can't play golf anymore. Um, I've lost something in my life, but I'm still able to kind of be semi-independent independent three is you're no longer semi-independent um you're independent you you require help but you're able to walk a certain amount even with a with whether it's a cane or walker but you can walk a certain distance um, and and ambulate which is a big and then four there's some things you can do but you can't walk like we just said with three five means you're you're pretty much total care by somebody else and six is dead so what we do is we compare one group of people who got the active treatment and one with the standard treatment, whatever that is, and we compare the their, their percentages or the range of outcomes in one group versus the other. And when that reaches a high probability that there was there's a, there's a difference between the two groups, that's when we say, "Up, oh, we got a new advance. We're going to change how we do things. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. And it's more on the timing side, right? So it started with 90 and each one of these trials says, all right, let's.
0: Right. And you said earlier is, and the thing is that the difference, the outcome really diminishes the further out you get from time zero, which is the onset of the symptoms. So within 90 minutes, you maybe have a three times greater likelihood you're going to get back to kind of where you were before or close. Mm-hmm. When you get out to that Four and a half. You're talking about maybe a only a not a three times or three hundred percent chance, but maybe only like a thirty percent chance. So it's almost it really diminishes quite quite a bit. And we do have ways in which we, if we get the imaging, we can even extend beyond the four and a half hours last seen normal. That allows us to go out further, but that requires again special imaging, which it still is extraordinarily important that people recognize the signs and symptoms of a stroke. And that usually means family members, but even the person who's, you know, could have the stroke themselves. And we, you'd mentioned the FAST before. The FAST was really adapted from our Cincinnati pre-hospital scale that was telling how the ambulance personnel could recognize people with stroke in the field. And we said, well, if they can do that, you know, general, the, the general public can do that as well. And so that's why we kind of adapted that for education of the general public to recognize. But it really is dependent upon how quickly people can recognize when something's happening and then calling 911 because they're very fast in our country. And you're going to be able to get somebody probably coming within five minutes and maybe getting to a hospital, depending where you live, within five to 10. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's the first step that's really the most important step.
1: Wow, thanks for that explanation on on the time window for TPA. And before we go to break, I just wanted to uh, mention that great example. Going back to when you were describing the two two types of stroke, that's the first time I I heard that explained very visually of like indoor plumbing and how a clot versus a bleed, but really the damage that actually can happen when 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 the bite bursts really so I, i'll be using that again but i think uh i uh i think we'll 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 come back after a short break and we'll dive into the stroke net and of course we'll be asking you our magic wand questions so we'll be right back with dr broderick
2: hey there no stroke listeners hope you're enjoying today's episode to make sure you never miss out on future episodes make sure to click that subscribe button subscribing is like having a front row seat to all of our latest episodes delivered right to your podcast app stay connected with us by hitting that subscribe button today now back to the show all right and we're back here with dr broderick um you know we we focused in the first half of this interview um, of your. research that you've been involved in over your career specifically you know focused on tpa um as well as you know the the great example of the two different types of stroke so i think that that really put things uh, in perspective and you know easily digestible because stroke is there's you know it could be confusing for folks but i think that's a great way to explain things and you know as as we move here into the second half you know you're you've again, as a you know validated and, and a researcher that's really been in the stroke space for a long time now is you've seen the value of and i think when in our side of things we see the power of community and data in the patient and the survivor angle right but what you've built is that same aspect in the research angle right um bringing together a, a really a a data warehouse and a, and a research community for stroke, and that's called StrokeNet. Um, so I'd love for you to just bring us through that the origin story of StrokeNet, your role, and you know we could dive into some of the the ways that patients and caregivers, families are getting involved in some of this research.
0: Yeah, great. So uh, I like to talk about what we call team science, and you know people have this vision of science is the The scientist sitting alone in his laboratory making you know eureka and say i found the cure for this or whatever that's not how it happens it it happens when you have a team of people who bring different skill sets who are bright and communicate with and they have a common goal and that's where really the great i I would say the great advances and certainly in medicine and healthcare occur so The idea was of StrokeNet and and it should be NIH StrokeNet because it is our tax dollars at work. I like to say it's probably the best use of our tax dollars uh, for science and for improving our health. Um, But when when we did trials, we've been doing trials for a long time, it takes a while to set up the team. You know, if you have to, every time we create a whole company, every time you wanna make something, you think how long that would take. So what you're trying to do here is to have a team that's already in place, that's ready to go with the next thing that needs to be treated. So, and the first network was something called SPOTRIUS. I won't say what it stands for, but it was eight centers that were focused on acute stroke, just acute stroke. And it was on smaller trials to kind of like startup studies, you know, testing something for the first time and seeing if it works. That began in 2000 and it was very successful, but the research community say, hey, look, why are you just focusing on acute treatment? Why aren't you also looking at prevention of stroke and recovery after stroke? And so the, and the NIH specifically, the NINDS heard that and said, you know, we're gonna go all in, we're gonna put a pretty substantial investment in, and we're going to look at all of those three areas of stroke treatment. And that was started in 2013. And what it included initially was 25 regional centers and the 25 regional centers were throughout the United States. But it wasn't just what a regional center was just not one place. It was a collection of other places that were connected to that regional hub. So eventually that was potentially out to 500 plus sites. Now, realistically only probably Between 200, 250 of the sites in the U.S. have been active, you know, enrolling patients. But it really, we've gone from zero studies in 2014 to 20 uh, trials, or what we call ancillary studies, um, since that time right now. So we've been really making a lot of progress. And some of that, some of the trials that have been done have really changed our practice and care for patients with stroke. So that's that that's a little bit about the history. We at the very beginning, um, we didn't have as active a patient involvement except for one trial, uh, which was in kids, which I mentioned my grandson earlier. My grandson had a stroke again when he was premature, very young. But when he was three, And he had substantial problems at age three with the use of the right side of his body and speaking and things like that from a stroke. There was a, a group who were studying a new way of treating pediatric stroke. And that was at Virginia Tech. And so my grandson actually did this very intensive therapy for four weeks at Virginia Tech. And what they do is they constrain, again, I mentioned before, the good arm, and then make you do everything with the arm that's not working so well. And he went through that and it was a, it was, I think, a game changer for, for my grandson, but it was just remarkable, you know, to see how it was done. It turns out that we had put a grant in to see if we could expand that to a a larger study across the country. And while my grandson was being, treated in the in the therapy we got word that the study which is called iacquire was funded and so we're now testing this in these young children from 18 months to three years this this intensive therapy versus standard therapy and then the neat thing about the study is that at six months afterwards if you got the standard treatment you can go to the intensive treatment for the next, you know, for a month like you do the, in the first six months. So everybody gets the advantage of having the intensive therapy, but we see how well people respond. The families are highly engaged. They help talk about with the investigators how to present this. They They talk about how maybe even assessing things, how to make the study better because the study actually, the therapy occurs in the patient's home or a home-like setting. It's not in the hospital or in an outpatient setting. You're actually trying to treat the child in their natural environment, doing the things that every, they do every day, but also doing a lot of play kind of activities. And, and, and the families have been tremendously helpful and are very engaged in that study. That became a model for us in trying to get patients involved not just after a study's been done but having them listen to the studies have their how they're presented the proposed study and giving their thoughts saying well that doesn't sound like patients i want to do that or why don't you think about this or this is how i would maybe present this or did you think about that so we have these patient survivors stroke survivors that are actually part of our working groups looking at acute treatment prevention and recovery and they've been very, very helpful. And that's been, I think, I think that's the future. You know, we're partnering with, you know, we should be partnering with our patients to see how we can do better.
1: That's a, that's a great example um, of how stroke net is utilized and, and bringing in the, the patient side of things. Um, can you also, so you mentioned early on, you know, you looking at how the brain breast recovers and, and that example of CIT, uh, we're recruiting and using uh, that in that case, I'm assuming it was just the CIT was the outcomes were being tracked on a PD population. Can you take that and apply that to sort of how uh, that might work in someone in their twenties or thirties or forties? And because the, the volume has sort of changed now that you have modified CIT, is there, is there, how is StrokeNet used in that capacity to kind of, you know, maybe change, tweak those windows or the volume based on age.
0: So, so we, we use, we... we're doing a number of different trials. So one trial we did, which is called telerehab, which this was, it worked out well during COVID as well, uh, that, that therapy was, but we, we said, okay, you can do every day going into the clinic and working with your arm. If the arm's not working well with a therapist but what if we could do that remotely so the therapist could be working with you via computer and different games and different things you're trying to do with your hand such that it'd be similar to what you'd be doing in person. And so that was an example. And that trial showed that the telerehabilitation was essentially very similar to people coming in every day to get their therapy. And and that we're actually going into a second phase of that, a, a study that's being submitted to take that further. Another trial we're doing called transport two is where we're doing the constraint therapy, but we're doing direct electrical STEM in the brain. And that is also, that's about only about a, maybe about nine months or so from completion of recruitment of that trial. So we'll see if that works. That's a what's called a phase two trial, an earlier trial to see if we need to expand this to a larger audience, larger group. But we are looking at a number of treatment options for recovery that involve modified constraint. But we're even, you know, we're looking at how we can improve language. Um, but we're we 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 need more recovery trials. I would just say that. Um, but we are making progress there.
2: So you mentioned, um, you know, and one, your grandson is a a fortunate young man to have his grandfather be Dr. Broderick, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for for many, you know, whether you're a, a pediatric stroke survivor, or, you know, young adult, or, you know, obviously, as, as you get older, you know, becoming more difficult to, to kind of get back to a, a norm per se. But I think one of the biggest challenges within the clinical trial space is education, right? And you mentioned one thing that is starting to help with some of the access to clinical trials, which is, you know, a common term of decentralized, right? Meaning you don't have to go to a to a place to get this treatment. Um, what are some of the other ways that you think you know patients could become better educated and? Often and with that, then help with enrollment and access, like getting more folks into clinical trials. Because I think that's you know certainly an area that's yeah that, been tough. I,
0: that's one of one of our one of my big goals is that I think every stroke patient should be considered for a some type of trial that improves whether it's help proves their likelihood of having another stroke or recovering. and my patients, you know I have some patients that have been to through two or three different recovery research studies. We have a lot of things ongoing in our place. And I would recommend that patients need to be more, I guess, active. you know they need to be talking to their to their physician and saying what's you know what's available? The problem is that most patients with stroke are being followed by their internist or family doctor after a certain time. They're not seeing the vascular neurologist. and certainly not seeing a physical medicine or recovery physician. So there, but there is a lot of things that are online. You know, you can go looking and see what kind of trials are going online and that are maybe within your region close. Usually it's gonna be at the academic center. It's not going to be at your generally- your, even your bigger community hospitals, there's a few exceptions to that, but there are some really good places that do recovery research. And I just think that's also something that as physicians, we have to take the ability to think, does this person qualify for something that may help them? We, sometimes you're busy in the clinic. You're just, you're trying to deal with the immediate thing. You're not thinking as much about the future and that's something we have to do better as as physicians. But you're more likely to get that in an academic center than you are probably out in the in the community. So if you're in the community, you need to be a little bit more aggressive and proactive. If you're seeing somebody in academic center, you should be asking what's available, and there may not be, but you need to ask.
1: Yeah. For our listeners, is is that built into StrokeNet at all? That there's an aggregated, you know, if someone goes to search for. Upper we have a
0: we have a website and it shows what all the studies going on with in stroke net but there's more studies than just going on in stroke net too i mean there's you know there can be a single center study that that is going on in in your in your region for example we only do multi center studies you know kind of bigger studies that are maybe at least five centers across the country so but there's a lot of other pilot smaller studies that start at a given place and uh, you should look at, you know, look at re- for research and recovery and make sure it's at a good academic institution and 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 see if it somehow would address your needs. we 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 need more research. You know, sometimes there's usually not a trial that fits what somebody is trying to get better, but again, be proactive and and I think that will that'll that'll help you. And as physicians, we need to be proactive as well.
2: Yeah, as well said. I think you know it just goes into part of you know the the survivor and that care team really needing to take ownership of their their life after stroke. Right, it's not going to be you know something that's kind of handed on a silver paddle really, and especially in our healthcare system. Um, you know, if you don't go out and advocate for yourself as a patient, it it could be. Trying, but I, I respect yeah, if, the fact if, that you you go on to the clinical side as well.
0: Right, but if you and if you have a if you have a child that you think may have had a stroke and they're between eighteen months and three years, um, we have a, a number of really good places across the country that you know you can. You can be participating in that particular trial the i acquired trial and there's other trials with that same group of investigators that actually look at children later you know late, older kids so uh and there's it, we'd be happy to steer people that way if they have interests
2: absolutely yeah we'll be sure to get that information off you and put it into our show notes for for listeners so thank you um so it's been a great conversation here, um, Dr. Broderick. And before we we let you go, our, our final question, each interview, um, we we wave our magic wand or fictitious magic wand. And we ask our guests, you know, if you were to use that magic wand to really redesign the stroke care pathway, um, you know, what, what would that look like in your eyes?
0: Well, we we kind of already talked about it. As I said, I would love every stroke patient to have the opportunity to participate in a research study that may help them or may help patients like them in the future. I think our our oncology community is much better at this, where that research is kind of part of the expectation, even out in the community, not just in the in the academic center. We like to be able to see that happen. That'd be my magic wand. I do think that. The AI advances, you know, it's such a popular th- th- thing right now to talk about. what can really help us. And I gave the example uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were originally do this the study or do the the program that I was in bed. My phone woke me up at six thirty in the morning because I'm an alarm there, and I saw uh, came up that a patient in our emergency department was had an intracerebral hemorrhage, which was the diagnosis was made by the program that identified bleeding kind of pictures in the brain. So I looked at that and I, I saw immediately, yep, that's a hemorrhage. And it looked like it could qualify for the fastest trial. So I called one of our clinical research coordinators who's based in the emergency department. And she'd also gotten the notice and said the patient was able to be consented I called the emergency physician who had even yet to even see the pictures or contact us. And he was surprised I was calling him. And I, my colleagues are on call for the stroke team, enrolled the patient in the study. Now, that doesn't happen without a program. It's pretty cool that allows the image to be recognized as a hemorrhage and alert me to say, hey, pay attention, there's, there's somebody you can maybe help here. That's an example of how I think we're making advances with our technology that can really help speed our care in the future, but also speed the decision whether we can get somebody in a research study.
2: Yeah, that's that's a powerful example and, and use of you know technology. And I think we've to go back to the mobile stroke unit. There was a, a study that I saw come out of Denmark, I believe, that they used machine learning to it was more like natural language process, I believe, but like to go through and actually pinpoint different words, things being used on the dispatch, 911 dispatch that triggered stroke and would enable the mobile stroke unit um, to, to go out faster. So, I mean, it's it's such an interesting time that we're in right now um, when we look at, you know, the use of technology, both the, the DAQ all the way through post um, in, in the care journey and just how things are going to evolve here. But um. Yeah. I. I think you know where. Where this conversation has gone. I think it's been, you know, great to really get that background and your involvement within TPA and kind of how that's been used to truly impact um, and improve outcomes over the years. But, um, you know, to hear your excitement around you know what what's next for the field and how you know we're going to be looking at outcomes in the in the recovery space as you know, an open like you know sky's the limit there there's certainly opportunity to continue to to focus um research and time and and patient involvement you know i think that was probably one of my you know highlights of this of how you've really brought them into the stroke net um and and be part of those studies so um you know thank you for for your work over the years thank you for your time and and really think it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners you know your why right of you know, why you're waking up and do this every day. So, hey, appreciate you you coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank
0: you. Thank you for your passion and advocacy for stroke, um, for getting the message out there. And it is a partnership. We're all in this together. So thanks.
1: Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Broder. All right. Take care.
2: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the No Stroke Podcast. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support, there are two ways that you can help us continue spreading stroke awareness. First, you could support us by subscribing, leaving, leaving us a review, and sharing the podcast with your friends and family. Your engagement helps us reach more people who can benefit from this valuable information. Second, if you're a business or organization passionate about stroke education, consider becoming a sponsor of the No Stroke Podcast. For more information on sponsorship opportunities or to get involved, please visit our website at nostrokepod.com or email me personally at michael at let's make a difference in the lives of stroke survivors. Thank you for your support.